All right, if you have your Bible, make your way to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 will be our uh, text this morning. I'll just start off by saying I missed you. All right, collective hug right this morning. All right, clearly I missed you more than you missed me. <laughs> Single tear. Uh, it is good to be back. I missed you last week. I was speaking at a conference in uh, Virginia last weekend, and uh, just good to be back. We're starting a new series this morning entitled Torn, uh, looking this week and next week at uh, a passage here in Hebrews that really deals with uh, an Old Testament thing uh, that relates to Easter, uh, Palm Sunday as well as Easter, and we're going to kind of dig that out and look at that. And so uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, if you're able to stand, please do so. So we honor the reading of God's Word. We're going to look this morning just through the first uh, ten verses of Hebrews chapter 9. writer of Hebrews writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. A tent was prepared in the first section in which there was a lampstand, a table, and the bread of presence. It was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, there was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which in, in it was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that had budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were a cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But in the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Would you pray with me? Lord, I do ask now that You would speak through Your Word. Holy Spirit, come and lead us into truth. Um, I'm convinced there are people in this room right now who are struggling to find peace and freedom. Set us free in Jesus. For we ask it in His name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this uh, coming Tuesday is uh, the tax deadline. Trust that you've got all your taxes in order. I know, like, what a terrible way to introduce a sermon. Um, but this Tuesday is the tax deadline. I trust that you've gotten everything in order, and I, I trust that in doing so, you've been ethical. You haven't tried to fudge anything. You haven't tried to cut corners or cheat anything. But if for some reason heaven forbid, someone here this morning has tried to defraud the government, I have great news for you. It's, some of you are like, tell me, tell me. It's, <laughs> it kind of concerns me. It's called the Conscience Fund. How many of you have ever heard of the Conscience Fund? Anybody? Just a few of you. It's a real fund uh, that was started in 1811 when the James Madison administration received $5 from someone who was trying to cheat the government. 
They had no idea what to do with that $5, and so they started a fund, which is called the Conscience Fund. And its existence is to do this, quote, to restore amounts which a donor considers to have been wrongfully acquired or withheld from the government. It is to, quote, ease the conscience from wrongful acts. It really does exist. And it's been interesting over the years the way people have given and confessed as they've given to the Conscience Fund. For instance, one lady sent in nine cents. Now making this up, expressing her sorrow for reusing a three cent stamp twice. Is that even a sin? I don't know. Another person wrote, eight years ago, I stole an item worth $25. It's been on my mind ever since, so I'm enclosing $50 to clear my conscience. One person said, here's $210 for letters I should not have read and food I didn't pay for. One lady even sent in homemade quilts in order to settle her her debt. My favorite was clearly this. One guy who had cheated on his taxes... Uh, mailed in a $1,000 check with this note. I cannot sleep. My conscience is bothering me, so here's $1,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest of the balance. (laughs) That's good. That's good. You know, that's humorous. True story. True story. True... uh, true situations, but it's, it's humorous. We laugh at that, but it points us to something very true, and that's every one of us in this room has experienced guilt or something on the conscience that we cannot shake. Every one of us is ashamed of something we've done in our life. Every one of us probably has something, if we could just go back and do that over, we would do it in a heartbeat. Something we did, a decision that we made, words that we said, maybe we said something to a spouse or a parent that now we'll never be able to make that right. And oh, how we wish we could go back and make it right. You see, like a howling wolf in the night, our conscience bears witness to us that something's wrong. And we do everything we can to try to atone for it. We ignore it. We cover it up. We work longer hours. We give to charity. We surround ourselves with friends that tell us that we're okay. We do whatever we can to make ourselves feel better, to ease the guilt, to soothe the conscience. But in the dark, quiet night of the soul, the wolf starts howling again. So what do you do? And I want you to think this morning of that one thing in your life, that decision, that episode, that thing that you wish you could get rid of. I want you to think about that as we look at this passage because Hebrews 9 outlines for us the Old Testament sacrificial system that God established through Moses and Israel in the Old Testament to deal with the guilt that accompanies sin. Now, if, if you've not been around church for very long, in reading this passage just a few moments ago, you're probably thinking, that's weird. That's strange. In fact, 
Even if you have been around church for a long time, it's still kind of strange to us. I mean, how many of you are anxiously looking forward to the Day of Atonement? That's what I thought. How many of you brought a goat with you to church this morning for me to sacrifice for you? Just one person back there. Okay, I see that goat. Thank you. But no, we don't, we don't think about worship in this way. We don't, this is so strange or, or odd to us. Even if we're around church, we read this and think, that doesn't make a lot of sense to my life today. But I want to ask you this morning, would you please hold tight? Would you stay with me as we look at a few details, but you need to know the details to see exactly how this relates to you. I promise you at the end of today, you're going to see why this matters to you right now, today. And you're going to see why it matters to Palm Sunday also. What does the author do here in describing the sacrificial system as it relates to our guilt and our sin? The first thing he does is he gives a description of the tabernacle. Look at verses 1 and even 2. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, or a a tabernacle. Listen, when you ask a Jew about worship, their mind immediately went to a place. In fact, the tabernacle was at the very center of the entire community. You notice in this picture here that everything was built around it. It was central in the life of an Israelite of temple worship. And when you worshiped, that's where you went. You went to the temple. They didn't have any, you know, live at the temple worship albums for you to put in your donkey while you plowed the field. You know, there, you, you couldn't download your favorite priest podcast and listen to it as you went to work. Uh, no, when you worship, you went to a place, the, the tabernacle. And God gave to Moses in Exodus specific instructions on how this tabernacle was to be laid out. Now, don't lose me in the detail because the detail matters. The first part here of the tabernacle that's actually not described in this particular passage was this outer court. And, and listen, Jews could come in and come and go all the time. Priests would come and go. And the first thing that you'd encounter was an altar. It's where people, when you did something wrong and you felt guilty about it, you'd bring, you'd drive up to the temple, you'd bring your offering, and I, as your priest, would sacrifice that offering for you. It was called a guilt offering. And now you could go feel better. Well, that's kind of bloody. And so right behind there would be this big basin of water for the priest to clean up after the sacrifice. It's important. So then you go to the next section, which the author mentions here in Hebrews 9, the holy place. When you walked in that, immediately to your left, you would notice a lampstand. It's like a a seven-branch lampstand that was filled with olive oil that was used to burn because it's not like you'd walk in the holy place and flip on the lights. There weren't windows to open. It was the light source for the tabernacle. On your right, there would be a table there of bread, 12 loaves of bread in two rows of six, and only the priest could eat that. In fact, only the priest could come into the holy place, and that bread was there for them to eat, and it was replaced every Sabbath. 
And so you had this sacrificing on the outside. You'd come in to the holy place where you had the lampstand and you had the bread. And you see that here in Hebrews 9. Then you go into the final area known as the most holy place or the holy of holies. Now, don't lose me in the details because this has everything to do with you. Notice what the author says about the most holy place. Uh, He says in verse 3, behind the second curtain, so oh, by the way, there's this big curtain that's about uh, 75 feet uh, wide and 150 feet uh, long. I'm sorry, 75 feet long, that'd be really bad. 150 feet wide, and, and it was because you couldn't have access to the Holy of Holies. Only one day a year on the Day of Atonement could the high priest go in. And when he went in, this is what you'd see. Now back to our text. It says in verse 4, "...having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant on all sides with gold and the golden urn holding manna, Aaron's staff, the tablets of the covenants." And then you keep reading in verse 5, the mercy seat. So right here. Here's, you walk into the most holy of holy places, and here's what you're going to find. There's going to be a place of incense where smoke would fill the room. Uh, There is the Ark of the Covenant, and inside the Ark of the Covenant are symbols of Israel's disobedience. So, for instance, the manna. Why did that symbolize disobedience? Well, if you remember in the Old Testament, Israel grumbled that God wasn't feeding them. They had it better in Egypt. They ate better there, and so God fed them with manna. Then you have Aaron's rod or staff because Israel rebelled against the leadership that God had established. And then you had the the tablets of of the covenant, the law that Israel repeated uh, over and over again. They broke the law and were disobedient to God. So these symbols of disobedience, now stay with me, stay with me, we're coming to you very shortly. On top of that is what was known as the mercy seat. So you have these symbols of disobedience, and on top of the symbols of disobedience, they put blood. The blood to sacrifice and atone for the sins of the people. On top there were two cherubim, two angelic beings or figures that represent the presence of God that hovered and looked over the sacrifice. Isn't that fascinating? I didn't know I was coming for a history lesson to church, but yeah, you've got the sacrifices outside. You walk into a lampstand and bread, and then you have a place of ultimate sacrifice and blood. Well, you had to have one more piece of this whole puzzle, and that was a priest. And that's what the author describes next. Look at verse 6. These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, that is the Holy of Holies, only um, once a year and not without blood, which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of the people. So, man, if you were a priest like you work long hours. Because when you're in the sin business, there's always work to do. I mean, people would come and go and come and go just in the outer court. I mean, this is like the line was always long of people, I did something wrong again. Here's my sacrifice. Okay, maybe I can feel better. Over and over and over and over and over again. In the holy place, they they had to continually refill the lampstand because the oil would run out. They had to continually replenish the bread 
It was over and over and over again. And then one time a year on the Day of Atonement, you can read about this in Leviticus 16. I'm sure you'll do that this afternoon. They would go in the Holy of Holies one time a year. Seven days before the Day of Atonement, the priest would leave his home and he would live at the tabernacle, reciting his lines over and over and over and over and over again. He would avoid any cell phones. He would avoid... (laughs) I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. He He would avoid any contact with anything that would make him unclean like the dead or anything like that. So he's, he's fully secluded because his mind is fully focused on the holiness of God. And then game day came. The final exam. And he'd put on his robe. He'd take a bull and two goats. The bull was for his sins and the sins of his family. The goats he would cast lots. One of them would become a sacrifice for the sins of the people. The other one would be set free, what's known as the scapegoat. He'd enter into the Holy of Holies three times. The first, he'd go in and he'd fill the room with smoke so as not to look upon the glory of God, and then he'd leave. He'd take the bull and the blood And he would take that and he'd go back in and he'd put that on the mercy seat and offer it up as for the sins for him and his family. And then he'd leave. And then he'd take the goat, the, I guess, unlucky one, and that had been sacrificed and he would take that blood in. He would offer that up for his people for their sins and then he would leave. He would take the goat that was left, the scapegoat, he would cast sins upon that and set it off into the wilderness to run away. And all of Israel clapped and celebrated and rejoiced. He'd take off his robe, put on a new robe, and he would lead his people into a great feast of celebration. It was party at the pastor's house, you know? And they would celebrate the sacrifice that had been made for their guilt. That's a lot of stuff, isn't it? That's a lot of detail. What in the world does it matter? Well, here's the first point. None of that ultimately was sufficient. Notice what the author says next, and now we're starting to get into your world very, very closely. Look at verse uh, 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. That's going to be very significant next week. Which, verse 9, is symbolic for the present age? According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered, here it is, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Are you kidding me? You do all that work and it doesn't work? The guilt is still there. The wolf keeps howling. And the author says, yeah. And you know why the guilt isn't ultimately removed? First of all, because it's ongoing. It's not finished. Do you know what they would do the next year? They'd do it again. And the year after that, they'd do it again. And they would keep doing all these specific details that I've just outlined for you. They'd do it over and over and over and over and over again because it wasn't final. 
the guilt had not ultimately been removed. The second reason why this system was ultimately insufficient is because you still remained at a distance. You couldn't get close enough. When the curtain was pulled to after the Day of Atonement for 364 days, you could not access God. And even the one that could access God was a high priest. So what does that do for you? It is though this big sign were hanging above to you, a common Israelite, stay at a distance. The third reason why it was insufficient was because it was external. It didn't go far enough. All this was was external deeds and rituals. The, the, the text even tells us they performed their ritualistic duties. But here's the problem. You can spray perfume on a dead man all you want, but you won't take away the smell. You don't solve your guilt issue, your conscience issue, by external rehabilitation. That's why in Psalm 51, the Bible says, you will not delight in sacrifice, or would I give it? You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I don't really care what you look like on the outside. It's your heart that keeps howling. And here's the last reason it was insufficient was because the guilt remained. Again, verse 9, they could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, a, an Israelite would go home after all of this activity, like some of you, and lay your head on the pillow only to hear the wolf howl again. Can you imagine how frustrating this must be? In all your works, in all your efforts, in all your trying to do the right thing, nothing takes the guilt away. You're still left with the fact that you're not the father you really wanted to be. You're left with that decision you made at high school that haunts you to this day. You still, from time to time, when you're in the shower or driving on your way to work or sitting at Starbucks having a cup of coffee, that event, that moment comes howling back. And you wonder, what can wash away my sin? What can get rid of this guilt? And the reason why I was so specific with you all throughout this talk with every single detail is because your hope is ultimately found in a temple. Every one of us needs a temple. Do you want your guilt removed? Every one of us needs a lampstand. Every one of us needs bread.
Every one of us needs a priest. Every one of us needs a sacrifice. And every one of us needs a day of atonement. Jesus is the point. And there is a real danger for religious people on a religious week of Easter to miss the point. And this is precisely why on Palm Sunday when Jesus came in on that donkey, He did not go to the hillside and preach a sermon. And He did not go find somebody who was sick and heal them. Do you know what He did? He went straight to the temple and He turned it on its head. Why? Because that which is the only one who can take your guilt away has come. The only one who can shut that wolf up from howling in your soul once and for all is Jesus Christ. Forever, period, it's finished. And every time that wolf starts howling again, all you've got to do is claim what Christ has done for you. Your past, your guilt, your sin, your dirtiness all cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Not through some religious ritual going through the motions, but Jesus Christ dying on the cross saying, it is finished for you. That's how you have your conscience pure. And my concern for the church, my concern for us on an Easter week is that we miss the point. We, we teach our kids morality through talking vegetables. And we, some of you will get that later. <laughs> we paintball our teenagers all the way through youth group. We offer every Bible study known to man. All the while we miss the point. And the point is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Look at me, folks. He is the only one who can take you from guilty to pure. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when Jesus on Palm Sunday went to the temple and He turned it over, what I'm hoping is that Jesus would come into your heart right now and turn it over. And for the first time in a long time, for you to have a sense of peace, that you're okay. Not because you're okay, but because He's made you okay. He made Him who knew no, knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. When that's been applied to your soul, the wolf can't howl for very long. I'm going to leave you with this image. 
Uh, C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia. You're probably picking up that we're big C.S. Lewis fans around here. There's a uh, part of the story of a little boy named Eustace. He um, is very selfish. He lived for himself. Made a lot of bad decisions. And one night he went to sleep and he woke up a dragon. The external had taken on the form of the internal. And on his leg was this golden bracelet that pierced him and it agonized him over and over and over again and there was absolutely nothing he could do to get free from the ongoing pain. Like some of you. No matter where he went, that pain went with him. Until one day he meets Aslan, the great lion. Aslan invites him to come up with him on top of the mountain. There's a, a garden there, and in the garden there's this well. And Eustace knows that if he can just get into that water, that that pain, that nagging, that agony would go away. But he can't get in. And Aslan looks at him and he says, you're going to have to undress. And then it hits Eustace in that moment, I'm a dragon. Uh, I, I can pull my skin off. And so he takes his claws and he just starts scratching and clawing and scratching and clawing to remove all the scales only to discover there's another layer. And so he scratches and claws again only to discover there's another layer. And he does this for three times till he finally realizes there's nothing he can do to get rid of the scales. And Aslan looks at him and says, you're going to have to let me undress you. The fear of having Aslan, this great lion, take his claws and start to remove the scales frightened Eustace. But he laid down on his back and Aslan began to remove the scales. And this is what he said, the first tear was so deep I thought it had pierced my heart. But before long, Aslan had pulled the skin off and I had on new clothes. You won't find peace from your guilt by trying to remove your skin. Only God can do that. Only Jesus can do that. So friends, you don't find hope. You don't find a pure conscience by trying to avoid it. You find it by seeing that it's already been resolved in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, have you put yourself on the mercy seat of Christ? You see, I'm not concerned about people in this room who have fallen behind on their taxes. I'm concerned about people in this room who have fallen short of the glory of God. And I offer you this morning not a conscience fund. I offer you a cross. 
where your guilt was paid for. You ask, what can wash away my sin? I say nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. God, I am absolutely convinced that there are people in this room where the wolf's been howling. A past they've been unable to leave behind. A decision that continues to reemerge in their mind. And the, the biggest fear I have is that we're here this morning doing ritualistic religious activity. And we'll walk out of this room and the church bells will ring, but the wolf will still be howling. And Lord, my prayer is this morning that each person, whatever that issue is in their life, would find it resolved in the cross. That they would not miss the point of Palm Sunday. And the point is that something, rather someone, greater than the temple is here. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.